Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm -hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached. When I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom, I went, oh. and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 461, Home at Last is the Hunter, with Chip Gross, and I am your co-host, and the guy who realized over the weekend that Cameron's two-year-old daughter is stronger than he is. <laughs> and I'm your co-host and the guy who's having a little turkey noodle soup today. All right. Yes, sir. So, those leftovers, huh? Yeah, every bit of them. So I had a good bit of leftover leg meat and thigh meat and a little bit of breast meat and the wing meat from Thanksgiving. And I made a stock using the carcass of the turkey so all the bones legs you know the breastbone all that stuff the neck everything went into a pot made a stock with that which is basically chicken broth but using a wild turkey Mm -hmm. and so then today made a turkey noodle soup with the leftover meat and homemade stock and man was it good it was so rich and delicious and i just i freaking love doing stuff like that so that that gobbler my fall gobblers fed what? There was 
six of us at Thanksgiving fed all of us. Then it's fed me lunch twice. And then now this turkey noodle soup, probably another. So I've had one meal off it. And we got probably another six servings in there of that. So, I mean, you're looking at getting about 12, 13 meals out of this turkey. Nice. Yeah. So pretty cool. Yeah. That's that's awesome. And, you know, it's great soup weather today. So that it is that it is. And I'm I'm starting to get a little bit of that jazzy voice sound that you had a couple weeks yeah. ago. I yeah. think I'm getting the same thing everybody's getting right now, but it, it tasted good, good to me. I have a little hot soup. Yeah, I bet it did. And yeah, yeah there's there's some kind of crud going around for sure. Uh, I don't, you know, I can't say that what I had is contagious, but it, whatever I had that rolled <laughs> into a sinus infection, I know a lot of people who have it right now. So yeah, everybody has it. Yeah. So. Yeah, but we enjoyed having you and Tammy join us for the weekend, and you got to see Josie show off her deadlifting skills. Well, I guess she's been, when y'all been going to the gym, she's obviously not just been hanging out in the little play area. She's been over there lifting with you guys. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah, we load the bar up for her and let her go. Man, I mean, she has this plastic toy that I think maybe it sticks on the, the wall or the tub. And when she's taking a bath, she uses that to play, but has two suction cups on the back of it. She went and got that out of the bathroom and brought it into the living room when we were over there Saturday. Stuck it down there on the coffee table and just proceeded to pick it up and put it back down and pick it up and put it down and pick it up and put it down. And so I had to show her that she was not the only strong one around, that I could easily do that. But turns out that it just wasn't that easy. And after about six or eight tries of me wanting to pull that toy off of the coffee table with the suction cups and Josie just rooting me on. I mean, she was over there just kind of like watching with just such anticipation, like she was going to just blow up as soon as it happened. And she was going, come on, Andy, come on, Andy. Finally, I got it off there and she just she loved it. man. Clapping. yeah big stuff big stuff so we had a good time that was a lot of fun hanging out with you guys thank you for having us yeah it was it was a blast it was and uh, y'all are always welcome you know that so good time getting to hang out together and this week we've got a cool show to bring you guys with mr chip gross from ohio and he is the author of two books poachers were my prey and home at last is the hunter so we kind of start the interview off talking about poachers were my prey with main character R.T. Stewart, who was interviewed by us a couple weeks ago. And an awesome interview. We get some more stories from that whole deal, which is awesome. And then we go into Home at Last is the Hunter. And man, do we get a story out of Chip on that one? Yeah. Yeah, man. that was that was some kind of some kind of story, you know, and I just I'm trying to think. And, and you are much more the turkey literature expert than i am but you know aside from the books that have just a bunch of stories in them that i always enjoy reading and we know oftentimes stories can become fiction but i don't know of another book about turkey hunting that is a fictional book yeah do you no i I don't that's which we find out this isn't complete fiction it's based on a lot of true story but 
but yeah, no, I don't know of any other fictional turkey hunting books. Yeah. So really, but it's a good one. Yeah. Kind of a unique take on turkey literature. And I've not read the book yet, but you better believe I'll be ordering that one as well. Yeah. So yeah, I've got four more books stacked up waiting to be read. And as soon as I get close to the end of that stack, I'll be ordering both of those books from Chip. So yeah, but you yeah, won't regret this, it. This was a, a great interview, just really interesting story about the book. And, you know, he shares an, a story of an accident that he had while hunting. And so what do you think? You want to jump in to this now and ask everybody to do the favor of the week of buying some raffle tickets from us afterwards? Or you want to ask them to buy raffle tickets now and then do the interview? Man. Let's jump on in there. Quick plug, if you're not going to listen to the whole thing, go down to the show notes, click the link, buy some raffle tickets. We'll more on that later. Let's There's no way. There is no way, none whatsoever, that somebody starts this episode and does not finish it. That's true. But it is, just in it case is there's good. some crazy guy out there, you know, go ahead, go down there, spend a couple thousand bucks on raffle tickets, and then f- finish the other half <laughs> of the episode. Then throw your phone in the lake yeah. and swear off podcasts forever. That's it. So right. we'll cool. see you guys on the other side. Hey, everybody. We're excited to tell you we got on the phone tonight Mr. Chip Gross, who is the author of two books that have turkey-related content, one more so than the other. But the first book was Poachers Were My Prey, which we talked about with our guest R.T. Stewart a couple weeks ago and Operation Redbud, where he brought down the ring of turkey hunting poachers. So Chip helped, I guess R.T. probably kind of told you the stories and you put it into book form. Is that how Poachers Were My Prey went? Yes, and I'll give you some background there. First of all, thank you guys for having me on. But R.T. Stewart and I were both uniformed wildlife officers, state wildlife officers here in Ohio. And uh, I was probably had been on with the agency about 10 years when he was hired. And he was uniformed officer for two or three years, but he really wanted to get into undercover work. So he was able to do that. And as you explained in uh, the two podcasts previously, he was the first Ohio officer to go undercover full-time and spent uh, 18 years there. Well, uh, during that period of time when he was making the transition from a uniformed officer to undercover, I would see him at various meetings, you know, district meetings and things like this. And when people started asking, you know, where's RT when he wasn't there, we weren't getting too many answers from our supervisors. And finally, he started showing back up at a few of the meetings, and he didn't look like the old RT. (laughs) And uh, he had long hair, beard, pretty scruffy clothes, and it didn't take too long to figure out that, okay, RT's undercover. So I got him off in the corner eventually, and I said, RT, when you're done with your career, I would like to write write your book, write your story. And he said, absolutely, I would like you to do that. So that's how it came about. And then uh, toward the end of his career, he came to me and he said, I'm on my last investigation. You can start shopping the book idea around. So I contacted Kent State University Press here in Ohio, and they were the publisher. 
Wow. Very cool. That's cool. Yeah. And I read that book prior to talking to RT and it is fantastic. Definitely would recommend listeners get that one and you will not lack for entertaining stories in that one or listen to the podcast we did with RT. He's just an entertaining guy anyway. <laughs> he really is. And I can't say enough good about RT Stewart. If anybody was born on this earth to do a particular job, it was RT Stewart as an undercover officer. And he's <laughs> tremendously talented at uh, what he did. And and you had it right when you were talking about he's a true chameleon, that he can fit in with any group from the lowest uh, poachers to the most uh, you know affluent poachers. And uh, he, he's so believable. And I I kid him when I don't see him too often anymore, but I always kid him. I said, RT, if you told me the sky was blue, I'd have to go out there and look just to make sure. And of course he laughed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so he was definitely a talented person, very, very good at what he did. Uh, quick thinking, fast on his feet, knew the woods, knew how to hunt, knew how to fish. I mean, he had all the boxes checked. So the Division of Wildlife here in Ohio couldn't have picked a better person to be the first officer undercover. And I think the major mistake that Ohio made was leaving him undercover so long, uh, 18 years. And as you mentioned mm -hmm. on the podcast, uh, toward the end of his career, his doctor, his heart doctor said, RT, you've got to you got to quit what you're doing. You're going to, you're going to die at it. You've had so much adrenaline going through your body, going through your heart for 18 years, your heart is wearing out. And that's where RT decided to draw the line and retire. So wow. that's, uh, that's a little background there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I actually finished the book while we were editing RT's interview and got to the part where he talked about that. So I think I said that in the outro of he had had so much adrenaline that he had to stop because it was killing his heart which is that's yeah. that's crazy to think about <laughs> yeah it well, is. When, you, when you look at law enforcement now and undercover officers from what i understand the average amount of time most officers are under anymore is three to five years and it's because of the stress mm. so wow. you know he was under what three times four times that uh, amount but again um the division of wildlife here in ohio was I was new at, at this, and RT was yeah. so good that they just gave him his head and, and let him do his thing. And uh, he, as she told you on the podcast, he won every case he ever took to trial, and I think that's saying something. Yeah. yeah. Would yeah. you say yeah. that if the typical time these days for an officer to go undercover is three to five years, so then probably most of them are working no more than two to four different investigations undercover in their career. Is that about that right? Could be. And that's just, uh, that just a guess. Now, RT was working extensive investigations. I think he said, if I remember right, the uh, shortest one was about 14 months and the longest one was four years. And again, this is just speculation on my point uh, for me. But I don't know that probably a lot of investigations, whether they're wildlife or, or what they are, go that long anymore as far as undercover. OK, so did he did y'all just get together and sit down and he just starts rattling off stories and you're writing stuff down? How did that process go? Yeah, here's how that worked. I mean, he lives in southern Ohio. I live in northern Ohio. So 
probably a three to four hour drive if we went, you know, one direction. But what we would do, he would start north, I would start south, and we had a designating designated meeting location. And we would meet at this house, and I would just start the uh, tape recorder running, and I would say, tell me about the investigation on Clambake. Tell me about the investigation mm-hmm. on Redbud. So we would do one investigation per meeting, and those meetings usually lasted about two hours. I would come home then. I would write for about two weeks, get it pretty much the way I wanted it, and I'd call him. I'd say, okay, RT, let's do it again. Let's go on to your next investigation. So we probably did that probably a dozen times to get the book in the shape that we wanted it. And uh, as you know, if you've read it, about 10 of the chapters are about various investigations. And then the last two chapters are about how he trained himself to go undercover and then how he trained other officers to go undercover. And I think the last two chapters are are just as interesting as the undercover cases themselves, just to learn some of the techniques, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you listened to both our shows with him. Is there anything when you heard the show that you're like, man, I wish RT had told this story or, you know, was there anything from those shows that you think we left out that was pretty interesting from your book? Well, just one thing, and and you touched on it, but halfway through his career, he was so deeply undercover that uh, he and his wife divorced. And he didn't come out and actually say we divorced. But if you read the book, you find out that that's what happened. And that very deeply Mm -hmm. affected him and still does to this day. Now, he's remarried, but he was very deeply hurt by the divorce, felt bad about that, felt bad about the fact that he couldn't be home for his kids much of the time when they were growing up. Uh, You know, he was working all the time, sometimes months at a time. So, uh, you know, when people listen to this podcast or they read Poacher's Room, I pray, keep that in mind that RT paid a tremendous price personally for what he did. And I asked him when we were about done writing the book, I just asked him one day, I said, RT, we've talked about this now for hours and hours. I said, was it worth it? And he stopped and he thought and he thought for several minutes and he said, no. And he said, I'm very proud of what I did. He said, I'm very proud. I put the bad guys behind bars, but it was not worth it personally to lose my wife and hurt my kids. And I thought that was very, very moving. So I want people to know, I want people to know that about him as well, that there's two sides to undercover work and uh, one side can be uh, pretty tough uh, when it comes to family. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cause you, it sounds like a almost superhero type deal where when you're first listening to it, he's, you know, the Batman character and it's awesome and he's doing all this cool stuff. You don't, you don't think about the implications back home. Correct. Yeah, correct. And uh, as, as you mentioned during the podcast, you asked the question, was it hard to change characters when you went back home? And he said, definitely. He said, you're playing a role when you're out there with the bad guys, and it's hard to switch that off overnight when you drive home and now you're with the wife and kids and you're dealing with reality. So that's a very, yeah. very difficult part of the job. And again, Keep in mind, he had no training for this. Officers today have all kinds of training, and they know what to look for. But RT had nothing. He was learning as as he went, and he was probably lucky 
to survive it mentally as, as well as physically. Yeah. Yeah. The close calls that he had, you know, really were just eye opening. And, you know, those are I guess that's really part of what intrigues me the most about any undercover work, you know, is just the close calls and, and the fact that these undercover officers are truly putting their lives in danger by doing what they do. And even even in the case of, you know, wildlife game violations, you know, you you prob- most people probably wouldn't think, well, you know, somebody's going to some Yahoo's going to try to kill a man over, a uh, you know, getting a ticket for fishing violations. But, yeah, I mean, you, you know, pe- people uh, is, you know, this is fresh in the in the southeast but you know fathers and sons have shot each other over football games you yeah. know so yeah, no, you don't know what people are going to do in yeah. stressful situations but uh rt was excellent in working his way talking his way out of those things and uh he said he was challenged on every investigation he was under that in every investigation the bad guys challenged him at least once. They said, you're, you're a wildlife officer, and he had to react to that. And he said, I knew the question was coming, but I never knew when, and I never knew how. And he said it was never asked the same way twice or in the same situation twice. So he always had to react. And as you talked about on the podcast, or he talked about, sometimes he wouldn't even reply to them. You know, he would just slough them yeah. off. Other times he would. Um he just had a real knack for feeling the situation and knowing what to do at the right time. So, again, uh, a very talented guy. And I've told him several times myself, you know, being a uniformed officer like I was, uh, I said, RT, I could not do what you do. I said, I'd be dead in 15 minutes. <laughs> so he's, uh, he's, he's a unique person. And, uh, you know, we still talk uh, occasionally and uh, – He's just a real jovial guy, has all kinds of stories, obviously. And so, anyhow, I just I wanted to touch on that and just give you kind of my two cents worth on poachers when I pray. But I felt very honored that he chose me to to write the story. And I and I really enjoyed doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a wonderful story. Highly recommend getting that book and listening to the podcast we did with RT a couple weeks ago. And you de- uh, if you listen to the podcast with him, you're going to want the book because there's we didn't touch on half the stories in those podcasts that are in the books. <laughs> we mostly focused yeah. on only one operation. Yeah, and, correct. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff there. A lot of stuff. Yeah. And there were things there were things he told me and in investigations we talked about that I did not want to put in the book. And I'm not going to say any more than that, but there was a lot more that he was involved with. And we just decided that okay, we're store. We told the story, and we're just gonna we're just gonna stop there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. I know you're talking about close calls, Andy. There was. I don't think we talked about this on the show with RT, but wasn't there a time where a guy accused him of wearing a wire? Yes. Yes. This is very interesting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it was up at Lake Erie, and. This guy 
and, and Archie was actually was wearing a wire, but uh, he had to talk <laughs> his way out of this one too. This is at a party, okay? This is during the summer, so they're, they're outside, kind of at a round of a patio, around a pool, and this guy who uh, I think at one time was even a, a Coast Guard guy, maybe Coast Guard Reserve or something like that, but he was into poaching uh, yellow perch, walleye, that sort of thing. So he accused RT of being a, a undercover officer and wearing a wire. Well, uh, RT always wore a white cowboy hat. He just loved wearing those. So on this particular day, instead of ignoring what the guy said, RT gets upset and he says, first of all, I'm not a game warden. I think you are. And I said, and RT says, I think you're wearing a wire. Let's see. And so RT, he stands up. He takes off his shirt to prove he's not wearing a wire. He drops his pants down to his shorts to show the guy he's not wearing a wire. And he says, now you prove it to me. You do the same thing. So there stands RT with no shirt and his skivvies and the other guy doing the same thing at this party outside. Of course, everybody's looking at him like, what in the world's going on here? Well, uh, after that, after that happens, they both sit back down and calm down. Well, RT had the wire in his cowboy hat, and the guy never said, take your hat off. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So that's how cool under fire RT can be. Now, here's the other side of this. When he was first getting started on Operation Clanbake, and that's Clan, C-L-A-N, that's C-L-A-N, but Operation Clanbake, he said he was so nervous the first night he got with these guys that he was smoking a cigar and he put the lit end of the cigar in his mouth <laughs> and burned his lip. <laughs> so it took a while to work into being, you know, calm around the bad guys, uh, being controlled. So it doesn't happen right away. But, uh, you know, he was, when he did that, when he burned his lip, he just, you know, laughed it off and went off from there. So um, he, he can, he can bounce with, with any way the ball, the ball bounce. That's incredible to just yep. strip yep. down yep. in front of everybody with a wire under your cowboy hat and be oh, cool yeah. enough to where yep. don't even, yep. you know, yep. and accuse yep. the other guy. I love that. Well, I think yeah, he, just, more. And he just turned the tables and the guy backed down, you know, uh, there yeah. was another time he was in a bar, the same thing. Uh, three, um, five or six guys sitting around the table. And one of the bad guys said, I think you're a game warden and points right at RT. And RT says, well, I am. As a matter of fact, where I'm wearing a wire. He said, just, just talk right in my shirt here. And of course, everybody laughed and he really was. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think, you know, along that line, I think one of the funniest things that he that he said when he was on the show is how he got some of those people, some of the poachers just to take cameras out and film themselves <laughs> committing game violations. Right. And then turn you know, the tape that, over to him. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the craziest thing to me. But the way he would do it, and, and he explained this on your show, but, you know, he would videotape them first. And, you know, he's getting all the glory and, you know, being the bad guy. And they thought they were being left out. So they would say, no, you take me, you know, let you take my picture now. So it's just the way he would manipulate people was amazing. Yeah. And, and he played to their pride. He always, he never let them know how good he was as far as a hunter, fisherman, that sort of thing. 
he always put them on a pedestal and he said, now you teach me, you know, I don't, I don't know all about this turkey hunting. I don't know all about this deer hunting, but you do. How about you teach me? And believe me, that's all it took. It was, he's putting the bait out there and more times than not, the bad guys would bite on it. So it's just amazing how he could manipulate people. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. So if somebody wants a copy of Poachers Were My Prey, what's the best way to do that? Well, if you'd like a, a quick copy, uh, go to Amazon and you can find one there, Poachers Were My Prey. If you would like an autographed copy, uh, you can go to my website, which is chipgross.com, just like it sounds, C-H-I-P-G-R-O-S-S.com. On that website, there will be a link to books. And on the book link there, you'll find Poachers Were My Prey, and it will tell you how to get one directly from me. Uh, you can either call me, you can send an email, you can send a text, whatever, but it will it will lay it out at uh, chipgross.com if you want an autographed copy. Great. Yeah. Highly, highly recommend getting an autographed copy and definitely suggest the book. And then before we talk about your second book that we wanted to talk about with you, I was just going to ask, are you a big turkey hunter? Yes. I've been uh, chasing them for over 40 years. Nice. And unfortunately, uh, <laughs> Ohio is uh, in the same situation most of the states are east of Mississippi. Our number of birds are going down drastically, and not quickly, but over the last 20 years or so, it's been starting starting down. And we've gone to one gobbler in the spring. It's just it's just tough to watch. I hope we can turn it around. Uh, matter of fact, for the last 20 years, I've been a, a full-time outdoors writer and I'm the uh, outdoors editor for a magazine here in Ohio called Ohio Cooperative Living Magazine. It's put out by the Ohio Rural Electric Cooperatives. Most states have electric cooperatives. But the reason mm -hmm. I mentioned that, in November issue, I've got one here in my hand, I did a story on where have all the wild turkeys gone. And one of the people that I interviewed was uh, Mike Chamberlain from University of Georgia. And, of course, he's yeah. talking and giving his ideas, and, you know, he's saying that it's not just one thing. He said uh, turkeys are facing three or four or five different uh, problems or situations, and it's the same same here in Ohio. So I hope it can be turned around, but the, uh, the hunting has not been the best up here. Now, it seems kind of spotty in Ohio. I talked to some hunters, and they say, well, we haven't no noticed much change in our area. But in my area, north central Ohio, I definitely have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it has to be pretty statewide for them to go to a one bird limit. You would think. Yes, correct, correct. And uh, they... usually, usually by this time of year, the season dates um, and regulations have been posted, but not this year. So I think they're probably looking at more changes. I don't know what those might be. I'm guessing mm -hmm. possibly shorter season. Uh, usually, our season is about a month. Maybe it could be, maybe it could go to three weeks. I don't know, but uh, they just haven't quite decided yet, but that'll be coming up shortly. Wow. wow. Yeah, and that's, that'll be interesting to see. Did they do anything to the fall season? No, uh, they have not. I would like to see that cut back, if not done away with. Um, and I know a lot of people don't, uh, don't believe that, but it just seems to me that, you know, if you're shooting hens in the fall, um, that's where the young, uh, the young poults are coming from. So I'm not a, a big fan of fall hunting. Now I, in, in saying that, um, 
I did some fall hunting years ago with a fella here in Ohio who had turkey dogs, and that was an amazing uh, hunt, a lot of fun, uh, pretty cool to watch those dogs work. You know, they go in, they, they split up the flock, and then he puts them in camouflage bags. I don't know if you've heard about that before. And then uh, yeah. we call the birds back in. And he had a young dog and an old dog. And the young dog, he put completely in the bag so its head was not out. With the older dog, he left the head out. And he said, now, you watch the dog's dog's head. He said, you will, she'll know when the turkeys are coming before we do. And sure enough, about half an hour later, you know, her ears per- perk up. And he said, okay, get ready. Here they come. So it was it was <laughs> a lot of fun to watch those dogs work. It really was. That's that cool. cool. Yeah. 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 So, but anyhow, we'll see what happens uh, here in Ohio. But one thing that sticks in my mind from that Mike Chamberlain interview is he said we're not going back to the 1990s anymore, and I I, I would guess that's right. Um, so hard to say that, but uh, I, I don't think we're we're going to go back 20 years anymore with the number of birds we had. Yeah. Yeah. Without you know, knowing your history and being a, a state employee, I know you've probably still got some friends that are that are in whether it's DNR or they're involved in the the you know as biologist or whatever whatever position they may have. I know you still got friends and that work for the state, but without. I guess, naming any names or hanging anybody out to dry. Do you feel like the state of Ohio is making enough strides or changes to try to turn things around there? Or do you feel like they've done what they can do and or or haven't done what they can as much as they can do? And I know a lot of that's just personal opinion, you know, without you're not a scientist. We're not scientists. But, you know, what are your personal opinions on that as far as the state's concerned? That's a good question. I don't have a problem answering that. The Division of Wildlife, ODNR, is well aware of the turkey situation, that it has changed drastically in Ohio, and I believe they're doing everything they can possibly do. Just a year ago, they started a three-year hen nesting study, so they're just one uh, one year into that right now. But they're just doing extra things like that to find out anything possibly they can find that uh, might be causing the downturn in the population. Now, we have a lot of predators here in Ohio that we we didn't have 20 years ago. Raccoon population is super high. The population of bobcats in Ohio is going up. We have coyotes established in the state for probably the last 30 to 40 years. So just a lot of ground predators, and that has to hurt uh, ground nesting turkeys. It absolutely has to. So to answer your question, I have no problem with what the ODNR is doing. And I'm not saying that just because I used to work there, but um, there's people there that really care about the resource. It's not just the job. Uh, you don't get uh, you don't get rich working for a division of wildlife, whether it be in Ohio or Arkansas or Tennessee or wherever. You do it because you love the outdoors. You do it because you love the critters. And uh, those are the type of people that we want in charge. And, and that's what's happening here in Ohio. That will make a difference. We don't know. But it's the same right. thing in the other states as well. So, yes, Ohio is, is well aware of the situation. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, going to a one-bird limit in the spring is about as restrictive as you can get while allowing a hunting season, you know? So yeah, I guess the exactly. next step would be have a quota yeah, we, of how many. We had, two, we had two birds for years, years and years, and uh, it changed a year or two ago, and I was glad to see that. And, and my point uh, with that is – uh, if you want to shoot more than one bird, go to another state, number one, or number two, better yet, take a young person out or take uh, a first-time hunter out, whether it be an adult or a young person, and you do the calling and let them pull the trigger. Let them experience turkey hunting. So that's what I tell people when they complain that we only have two birds. I, I tell them, hey, let, let somebody else uh, have the enjoyment, uh, introduce them to turkey hunting. And that's what I'm doing with my um, grandsons now. And the best hunt I ever had in my life in 40, year, 40 years happened two years ago, be the 2022 season. It was, I had my 12 year old grandson out and he and I both killed gobblers from the same blind within a couple seconds of each other. And we did it with one shotgun. (laughs) And I let him shoot first, never expecting that I would even get a shot. And you've probably seen this happen before. One of the birds went down and the other rushed right over to see what was going on. And I was able to uh, take the shotgun from my grandson and kill the second one. So within seconds, we had two birds down and this was his first turkey hunting ever. And it couldn't, couldn't have worked out any better. So if I, if I never kill another turkey, uh, I'll always have that memory with my grandson. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. pretty special right there. Very special. doesn't get in more special than that. I've like you have, I've uh, called birds for other people and that sort of thing. But when it comes to family, when it comes to next generation, when it comes to grandkids in particular, yeah, that's, that's something uh, not only that I will have, but, you know, when I'm, when I'm long gone, he's going to be able to tell his grandkids, I can remember shooting a wild turkey with my grandpa, you know? So, yeah. So yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. That is cool. All we can do is pray that there's going to be wild turkeys around. I hope so. For I his hope grandkids. Around and uh, we'll just, we'll just have to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of grandparent relationships your second book kind of starts out with that so if you want to jump over into the second book i want to discuss with you is titled home at last is the hunter yeah and Uh it is a book it is actually a fiction turkey book correct well yes and no meaning that uh, you know how hollywood says that based on a true story uh this was this is based on a true story and i'll I'll tell you a little bit about the characters and then I'll tell you who's real and who's not. And then we'll kind of go from there. But it's a story about a story about a a young boy, age 13, who learns to turkey hunt from his grandfather. And uh, it's a growing up story, a coming of age story. It follows the young man from age 13 to age 21. And not only does he grow up and mature physically, but there's also a spiritual side to the book. He, He grows up. Spiritually. Well, obviously, in the book, the, the young boy is me. The grandfather in the book who teaches the boy to hunt, he's a combination character. He's a combination of my grandfather and my father. I had two men in my life, those two men, which were outdoorsmen, and very fortunate to have them because they got me started hunting, fishing, camping, whatever. 
And that led to me into a career of natural resources. But my father taught me to hunt. My grandfather taught me to fish. So I put those two men together in that character. Now, there's a mother in the book, and obviously that's uh, my mom who just passed away here a couple months ago. But then there's a wildlife officer, and the wildlife officer in the book is a combination character as well of several officers that I worked with during my career. So when I say it's based on a true story, that's part of it. Now, another part that's true is the farm that where the grandfather lives is called Gobbler's Knob. That farm actually exists. It's in West Virginia, and it's on the edge of the Monongahela National Forest. And the way I got to know that farm is several fellow wildlife officers and I would go down to hunt that farm every spring, oh, probably 20-so years ago. But we went for four or five springs in a year and just fell in love with that place. And I thought, if I ever write a turkey hunting book, this is going to be the place. So the farm exists. Uh, those mountains exist. I use the same names that are on the mountains in reality, uh, the same trails. And uh, there's one other part to the book that a lot of people don't realize is true. And I'm gonna, not going to give too many details <laughs> to where the story is spoiled for your listeners. But there's a turkey hunting accident that happens in the book. Uh, the boy yeah. is accidentally shot by another hunter. Uh, that actually happened to me. I was shot by really? another turkey hunter. Yes, I was shot by another turkey hunter in the 1980s, and wow. I lost the sight permanently in my left eye because of that story. Wow! So we, we can talk wow. a little bit about that if you'd like. But when that yeah uh, accident happened, I didn't step back in the turkey woods for four years. I was just did not feel comfortable, and it was during that time that I wrote Home at Last as the Hunter, and I wrote part of the book. Really? sitting in that farmhouse there in West Virginia, because I would go down with the guys when they would hunt. But again, I didn't feel comfortable enough to go out in the woods. So I would sit there in the uh, farmhouse with a manual typewriter. And I wrote uh, some of that story as they were out hunting during that particular week. So that's kind of the, the, some of the background to Home at Last as a Hunter. Wow. Wow. That's that crazy. That is cool. That adds a lot of context to the book for me after I just finished it uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. And yeah. that's incredible. That was that was going to be one of my main questions was, were these based on real life experiences? And sounds like it definitely was. Yeah. Uh, and the hunting accident actually happened here in Ohio, did not happen in West Virginia. Um, I was hunting a state forest called Mohican State Forest here in Ohio. And uh I'd actually come back from that West Virginia hunt, arrived back home on a Sunday, and the next morning, Monday morning, the Ohio season came in. So I'm hunting in Ohio. Uh, there weren't any birds around where I live now, so I had to drive about an hour east. Um, was hunting there. Beautiful spring morning. You've all experienced it where, uh, you know, the woods is just perfect. There's no wind. You should be able to hear a gobble for a mile. And nothing, you know. So I start walking the the start walking the trails, and you know, stopping and calling every once in a while just to see if I could hear a gobble. Nothing. Sun comes up, and uh, all of a sudden, it feels like somebody has slammed me on the side of the head, the left side of my head, with a baseball bat, wow. and it knocks me down. 
and I couldn't figure out, and my mind is racing at this point, but I couldn't figure out what had happened. I put my hand up to the left side of my face. I pull it away. My hand is bloody, and I'm thinking, what in the world? And I look over to my right. I was carrying my gun on a sling on my right shoulder, and I thought, well, the gun exploded for some reason. So I look at the gun laying in the leaves, and it's fine. And I'm thinking, what in the world happened here? And it wasn't until that other guy got up. He was sitting down. He was 30 yards away. And it wasn't until he got up and started walking toward me, and I heard him walking, that it clicked that I'd been shot. And the wow. first thing I mm. did was I yelled at him. I said, don't shoot again. I said, you just, you just shot me. Don't shoot again. Because we've had incidents here in Ohio uh, where hunters have shot other hunters, turkey hunters, and run off and leave them left i was just hoping that wasn't going to happen so he walks up fairly close he had kind of knocked me down a small hill he was sitting up higher he had knocked me down a small hill he said where are you i said i'm down here and uh he said what happened i said you just shot me and i said go get help and he said where am i well, he didn't even know where it was i said there's a farmhouse up over the hill i'll stay here you go get help so he he turns around, he takes off running, and I, all I can hope is he actually is going for help and not just going to leave me there. So I, I tried to lay down. I picked, uh, took a handkerchief out of my you know, pocket, put it up to my face, and I kept trying to open my left eye. And this is going to sound kind of gross, but I actually could watch the blood fill up in my left eye, and finally the sight was gone in it. And I can remember taking a knuckle wow. of my fist and trying to wipe that blood off so I could see. And it was actually filling up from the inside. Mm. So I said a quick prayer. Gosh. I just, it just said, God help me because I didn't know if I was bleeding to death there or what was going to happen. So I laid down and I waited and probably, I don't know, it was hard to tell maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes later, he comes running back, thankfully, and it helps me out of the woods and about the time we get there, and this was before the time of cell phones, you know, there's no cell phones. So about that time, uh, the rescue squad showed up and they took me about 30 miles to the local hospital. Uh, they kept me there for a few hours, stabilized me. And then they transferred me to Columbus, Ohio, which is a state capital. And they have uh, eye centers down there. Well, after three eye surgeries over a period of about three months, I eventually just completely lost the sight in the left eye. So I'm blind mm. in my left eye mm. because of turkey hunting, but, uh, you know, I'm thankful to be alive. Oh, and, and here's another detail. This is probably why I'm still alive. The guy shot me with a muzzle-loading shotgun, believe it. It was not his shotgun. A buddy of his loaded it and handed it to him and said, go shoot a turkey, and I was the first turkey that showed up. So uh, wow. had it been had it been a modern, you know, tightly choked gun at 30 yards, he probably would have killed me. But uh, I was hit with about 20 pellets from about my elbow on up the side of the arm, side of my face, and I still carry most of those pellets. The doctors said, if they don't cause you any problem as far as infection, we're just going to leave them in. So uh, when I go to get an x-ray, it's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm pretty well speckled on the left side. Dang. My gosh, what was what was the hunter's story on that? He, he thought I was a turkey, meaning that he said that he didn't. And, and this is this is amazing too. It's amazing I didn't see him. This guy was not dressed in the first stack of camouflage. He's wearing blue jeans and he's wearing a yellow plaid shirt. 
and he's sitting at the base of the tree and I never saw him. He was up to my left. You know, I was kind of down and yeah. he, he heard me calling and he said, I, I heard you call. I thought it was a turkey. He said, I got the gun up. I pointed it toward you. And he said, as soon as I, I saw movement, I pulled the trigger. And Jeez. obviously he didn't see a beard. You know, he just, he just shot. He didn't know whether it was a hen, a gobbler, a person or whatever. So uh, that's, that's how it happened. Mm. Wow. So, yeah. So anyhow, that's all background to how Home at Last as a Hunter came to be. I had all these thoughts in my mind over four years um, and all these people were coming to mind and my family was coming to mind and, um, you know, I could have been killed and it just, it just started falling into place. And that's how the, the the book came to be. Wow, and man, that puts a lot in perspective. It because that that story is definitely in there. Um, you know, not with you particularly, but now that makes that a lot more lifelike, I guess, because I know it happened. <laughs> yeah, so that's yeah. wild. But, but uh, again, I'm, the, I'm thankful to, thankful to be alive, and uh, you know, praise God, I am. That guy could have killed me very easily. Yeah. And how old were you when you got shot? I think I was 34 at the time, somewhere in there. It was wow. in the uh, when in the mid mid 80s, mid 80s. So it's been been quite a while. And you know, I've I've adapted. I I don't even think about it anymore. But when it happened, you know, you lose an eye or you lose uh, another body part or whatever. You think about it every day. And I don't even think about yeah. it anymore. Just, you know, you just your body just adapts and and you go on. So um, it's not like it's traumatized me or anything like that, but it certainly um, was tough to get over. I I was off work at the Division of Wildlife for three months when I was having those various surgeries, and they were hoping to save the eye. And uh, just after three eye surgeries, the, the last time the doctor operated, he said, Chip, I got in there, and he said everything just blew up. He said all about all I could do was cauterize everything and get out. So that's how it ended. Mm-hmm. And, and is, I mean, you were married with kids at that point? Yes. Uh, my wife and I have two boys, and they're well-grown now with their own families, but they were pretty young at the time. And I'm that's who I'm thinking about when I'm laying in that woods. I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about my two sons, thinking, you know what? I may never see them again. Because, again, I didn't know how bad, badly I was hurt. I didn't know if you know I was going to bleed to death there or, or what was going on. And that's that's what I was thinking about was, was my family. It wasn't it wasn't turkey hunting. It wasn't I got to mow the grass when I get home. You know, it's like uh, th- this could be the end. So mm-hmm. it just, again, uh, during those four years where I didn't hunt, I had all those thoughts, and, and I really had to – had to put it down in a story somehow, some way. And that's how it all started to fall together. Is the person who shot you still alive? And have you spoken with him recently? Or uh, he, do you have any communication with him at all? No, he has passed away. He wanted to talk to me after the accident. And the local wildlife officer in that county, well, he had contacted the local wildlife officer who said, he said, I want to talk to Chip. And the local officer said, I don't think this is a good time. Just better leave it alone for a while. And that's what the officer reported back to me. And is, I was glad that he did because I was not yeah. ready to talk about it. I was so angry at the guy for, you know, just shooting at a movement. Yeah. I was glad it, glad it didn't happen. Now, he was 
he was arrested or he was uh, cited for what's called negligent hunting here in Ohio. If you do damage to property or someone else, um, you know, you're going to have to go to court for that. So it was court was pretty disappointing. Uh, we got in there and uh, the guy said, well, yeah, I did it. And, but the judge says this. Oh, and he said this too. He said, yeah, I did it. Now this is fall. Okay. The accident happened in the spring. Now it's fall. We finally come to trial. And uh, <clears throat> the attorney for the fellow that shot me said, your honor, my client pleads guilty, but he would like to be able to hunt deer this fall. So if you're going to take his license, you should do it after the deer season. And the judge said, yes. Wow. Can you believe that? <laughs> so. Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. So he lets the guy back out. Uh, and I think the guy maybe spent two or three days in jail, like a weekend or something like that and, and paid a fine, but that was, that was about it. So I was, I was disappointed, um, in the outcome that way. He was found guilty, but it was kind of like a slap on the wrist. Yeah. I mean, he only shot another man out of complete negligence. So that, yeah, you know, let him keep deer hunting. That sounds, sounds good. Let him have a rifle. (laughs) Yeah, because yeah. you know you wouldn't think it'd be a threat to do that again. Yeah, I know. I just I just couldn't believe it when the when the judge said what he said. But all you can do is, is sit there at that point. <clears throat> so, mm. um, so with the the four years you took off, I mean, what was the the first time you went back turkey hunting? Was it pretty like how was that feeling? It felt I couldn't relax. It was like I'm looking behind every tree, trying to see if there's anybody else in the woods. I could not relax and enjoy the hunt. It was like the hunt was was tainted, was just not fun. I'm I'm too tense. Uh, this is this is just no good. So, you know, I tried it a couple times and I just knew I wasn't ready. Um, so I would just I would take more time off. You know, maybe another year, maybe another two years. And finally, I got back to it. And what I do now, which makes it a lot more, a lot easier for me, is I hunt from blinds. No more sneaking mm-hmm. through the woods. No, no more running and gunning that sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of people that hunt here in Ohio, and not too many public areas. And I, uh, that's another uh, thing that I made it a rule. I don't hunt public land anymore. I, I hunt on private property. But I hunt from blinds, and I just uh, if the turkeys don't come to me, then then they don't get shot. But I can enjoy the hunt much more. And like I said, when I'm taking my grandsons out, I know they're in the blind with me, and they're not running and gunning and taking that same chance that I did. So that's how just one of the ways the incident uh, changed me as a turkey hunter. And but this is interesting. I'm probably killing more turkeys now than I did running and gunning because I'm, you know, <laughs> not, not running around so much. <laughs> You're not scaring there. them all. Yeah, 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 exactly. So anyway, that's that was uh, one of the things that, that came out of the incident. Wow, that's, that is interesting. That To be honest, that was the part of the story I wouldn't have guessed actually happened to you. <laughs> that, well, that's that why is... I told it to you, because a lot of people um, don't realize that. And I had a speaking business for the last, oh, for 10 years following the, uh, the accident. And, uh, you know, I was, I was talking at game dinners and church game dinners and things like that. And I would tell that story as if it happened to someone else. And after I got done with the story, I said that I would say, I would ask the question, does anybody here 
know who the victim was in that hunting situation. Most of the time, you'd have zero hands go up. And then I would take my glasses off and I would say, does my left eye look different from my right eye? And you could just see the mouths drop open. And believe wow. me, you you had them at that point and you could go on and finish the story from there. So for 10 years, I told that story uh, throughout Ohio at different speaking engagements and tried to wring as much good out of it as possible that, uh, hey, we've got a great resource here in the wild turkey Turkey hunting is a lot of fun, but if you do it wrong, you could hurt somebody else. You could kill someone else, and here's what happened to me. So, um, again, I tried to get as much positive out of the incident as I could. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things. You hear stories of people getting shot turkey hunting every year pretty much, but you kind of read it and think, that could never happen to me. But <laughs> well, it definitely can <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was contacted by Outdoor Life magazine as soon as that happened, and they said, we want your story. And I said, well, let me heal up and I'll write it. So we did that, and uh, that was the title of the story. I didn't think it could happen to me. <laughs> and at the time, too, with the Division of Wildlife, I was out of the field by that time. As I was still a uniformed officer. But what I was I was doing at the time, I was what's called an education officer, and I'm teaching hunter education, trapper education, and I'm teaching people how to handle firearms, how to hunt, that sort of thing. And I really thought it would never happen to me. But, you know, by someone else's negligence, you can still be hurt. So, you know, not only was I talking to you know school groups, church groups, that sort of thing, but every time I did a hunter education class, I told that story, and I told it, again, as if it happened to someone else, and then took my glasses off. And I think if if those kids didn't remember one other thing from that class, they remembered that story, you know, that, that this is a serious thing. When you step into the turkey woods or any hunting woods, you have the potential to take a life. And uh, once you pull that trigger, that shot, uh, that bullet, it's never coming back. It's going to do the damage it's going to do. So, uh, again, I was I was able to use it not only personally, but professionally as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> and so best to err on the side of caution and not squeeze that trigger. You know, worst case, yeah. a turkey walks and you get to hunt him again later that day or the next day. Yeah, don't take a chance. I mean, it's, it's certainly not worth it. Um, we've mm, all mm. been in situations in the woods where we were tempted to pull the trigger where you just see part of the bird or... You know, you think he's there or whatever, and uh, it, it's it's not worth it. And we preach this all the time, you know, see the beard, see the beard. Um, but I know how exciting turkey hunting is, and you guys do too. And it's easy to make a mistake when you're when you're all pumped up. Yeah. 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 So the title of the book, Home at Last is the Hunter, is that actually on your father or grandfather's grave? It's not. No, it is not. Okay. And, uh, but I'm planning on putting on my gravestone and I'm very serious okay. about that. I'm going to put the title, title of the book on the gravestone. So I hope I got a few more years yet. We'll see. But <laughs> I thought that that would be a, that would be a good epitaph for me. Yeah. What, where did you, where did that title come from for you? Just one night laying in bed, you thought of it and thought that's a great title or does it have a no. meaning to you? No, there's uh, Robert Louis Stevenson had a poem, and part of the title 
comes from that. Let me see if I can can find it here. Again, Robert Louis Stevenson, Requiem. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. So that's where the title came from. That is cool. Yeah. That is that's really cool. And the book, like you said, it follows kind of the growth of a young man who is you and through his younger years learning to turkey hunt from his grandfather and but then like you said it has a lot of spiritual meaning to it especially towards the end and it's just it's a great read i gotta tell you i i read through it really fast and it's a it's a large book you know it's not a small story it's 222 pages Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's fascinating to me i i really enjoyed it your descriptions on the hunt I mean, some of those hunts had to be pretty real because you described them like so accurately. Like, it has to be real because <laughs> I can see myself yeah, sitting all, there. You know, all of them were real. They either happened in West Virginia in those mountains, or they happened here in Ohio, and I just transported them down there. But uh, you remember yeah. the one hunt where the boys in the woods and he gets caught in a uh, uh, thunderstorm up on top of the mountain. That one's yeah. real. <laughs> That one got my attention. And, uh, you know, when, when he sees the black bear or black bears, you know, I had to work those in. Those were that that actually happened. So not much of it is made up that way. Some is. So it's kind of part true, part fiction. But I want it to be a good read, a good story. And a lot of people have read it. A lot of people, they have told me, and this is not just friends, but just the folk like you, that they've They've got it on their nightstand, and they'll read it once a year, or so usually before turkey season. So I, I feel that's yeah. a that's a real honor that uh, people enjoyed the the book that much. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is. It's it's that good. It truly is. And I mean, I just read it, so it's fresh on my mind. But it is, you know, to be honest, when I picked it up and knew it was a fiction or or what it says in the inside fiction book i was a little skeptical almost but now knowing that it's pretty much isn't fiction and after reading it not at all like it, it is an excellent story well thank you i appreciate it guys very much and i appreciate you having me on do you want to tell people how to get a copy of home at last as the hunter is that also available on the website you referenced earlier Yes, it's the same same thing, same website, chipgross.com. You can find Poachers Were My Prey. You can find Home at Last as a Hunter. You can find several other books that I've written there. And there, the other books are more instructional. One's hunting, a couple fishing books, that sort of thing. But uh, Poachers Were My Prey or Home at Last as a Hunter, uh, go to Amazon. But if you want a uh, signed copy i'd be glad to do that just go to my website chipgross.com and you can order off the website and if you want a signed first edition hardback copy like i have you're gonna have to go looking because those are hard to come by (laughs) (laughs) they are there's there's some still on amazon but like i said they're they're asking several hundred bucks for a hard copy whether they're getting it i don't know but i have i have less than 20 left i set I set a box of 50 aside when the book came out and I've just been giving them away to special people and I'm, I'm down to less than 20 now. And probably those, most of the rest of those are going to go to grandkids, you know, great grandkids, that sort of thing. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've got my hardback though, so I'm proud to have it. It has an oh, honored good. spot on my bookshelf. So, but well, we appreciate appreciate you coming on, Chip. Thanks for talking about these two books with us. Thanks for taking your time to write them and then share the story of this hunting accident specifically on this show because I think that's gonna that could help impact some people to realize the severity of the situation when we're running around out there in the public woods with a gun. Absolutely. I hope so. I hope so. I just, you know, anything I can do to make turkey hunting safer, that's been my goal ever since the accident uh, happened to me. That, yeah, it's a great sport and uh, it's very, very exciting, but I've seen the other side and uh, I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. So, guys, if you're listening, be, be careful out there. Yeah, well, absolutely. I appreciate you using your voice to do that. And it sounds like you've been doing that for several years, and maybe that was part of God's plan was to put you through that so you could help others with your story. Well, I really feel that because, number one, I could have died there. Number two, uh, I could have lost both of my eyes. Didn't I wasn't mm. wearing any glasses. And now I talk to people even about that. You know, if you're turkey hunting, are you wearing shooting glasses? You know, if not, you should be, even if you don't like them. Uh, we wear shooting glasses to, you know, shoot sporting clays or whatever we do. But uh, if you don't have shooting glasses on in the hunting woods, you need to. If that probably would have would have spared my left eye had I had a pair of glasses on that day. Yeah. Wow. Never thought of that. Yeah. I second what Cameron said about sharing the story about your shooting accident. You know, and and I know it's. Much easier to talk about today, but probably still not that easy for you to talk about. So, right. you know, for right. you to share that is awesome. You know, such a personal, private story. And, you know, if it makes one person hesitate long enough to realize that they're about to make a big mistake, then yeah, it, yep. it, it definitely is worth you sharing it. So thank you for that. Sure. Glad to. And if you guys can, uh, you know, put that uh on the podcast in such a way that, uh, again, if it affects other folks, other turkey hunters, that that would be fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll go there. Yeah. Well, okay, Chip, guys. thank you. It was a yeah. pleasure. Man, that's, I, I don't know that we've ever had anybody on the show that has been involved in a turkey hunting accident like that, you know, of that magnitude. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. It, that's crazy to hear that from him after read the book too, because that that story's in there. You know, the character Jeff goes through that, and it's you know part of the story of the book. And then for him to tell you or tell us that that's what really happened to him, that really put it in perspective. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. So. You know, I appreciate him sharing that story, and you know, like we said in the in the interview, if if it causes one person to pause just for a few seconds before squeezing the trigger and then they realize that what they thought was a turkey is not a turkey and it prevents one accident then him sharing that story was well well worth it yes do not shoot at movement do not shoot in the direction of sounds positively 1000 percent identify your target before releasing that bullet or shotgun shell please yeah you know, and he shares that story and it gets me to thinking, I don't really sweat or give a second thought to 
I'm going to use the term running and gunning because everybody listening to the show knows knows what it means. Yeah. You know, whether I'm on public ground or, or private ground, I just don't give it a second thought because, you know, I guess all these years I've just made the assumption that nobody's going to be dumb enough just to shoot towards the direction of a sound. Yeah. Well, apparently you're giving people too much credit. <laughs> I guess so. You know, so really makes you think and man, it's it's eye opening for sure. No doubt. No doubt. Well, let's jump into the favor of the week. We know what that's going to be. So, <laughs> guys, if y'all want to go turkey hunting with Andy and I in, let me say this with some gusto, 82 days. That is not long, my friends. 82 no. days. If you'd like to be on a plane headed to go turkey hunting Tuesday after NWTF convention, you're going to need to go to the link in the show notes or go to my Instagram, Cameron Weddington, and click the link there and buy some raffle tickets for a February Texas Rio Grande turkey hunt. It is late February. They're going to be gobbling. They're going to be in probably pretty good sized flocks with hens, if I had to guess. And we're going to be hunting them. We're each going to get to kill two birds. Andy and I'll be there, and two winners will be drawn. So there'll be eight potential turkey tags out there. And we're going down to El Mapache Blanco Ranch to hunt Rios, and we hope you'll join us. So you can do that by going to that link and buying some raffle tickets. I don't think you'll be disappointed that you did, because proceeds are going to be split between Turkeys for Tomorrow and the National Wild Turkey Federation. So this is a fundraiser for those two great organizations as well as a good chance for you to go hunt Texas Rios in late February. Yeah, and we all know this. It's still going to be hunting, even though we're going with an outfitter. We're still going to have to hunt in order to have an opportunity to take even one turkey. So we'll have to hunt hard, and we will definitely do that. But one thing that we will guarantee is a good time. We're going to eat well and hunt hard cut up, have some laughs, and hopefully get to squeeze the trigger on some wild turkeys while we're out there. So please do yeah. buy some tickets. And, you know, we're very, very close on the break-even part of this hunt. And so, you know, pretty much here in the next, uh, I'm just going to stick my neck out and say in the next week or so, we're going to be having the tickets that you purchase. Every single one of them would, would be for proceeds that would be split among these two awesome organizations. So, yes, you guys Absolutely. go by early and go by often your chances of hunting with me and Cameron in late February. Please, please do. Look forward to seeing y'all in February and hope you guys enjoyed this show. Why don't you wrap us up, Andy? All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week and we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com 
to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.